Okay, right. Well, uh, on, 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 my, on, on my watch, the little hand is just over Winnie the Pooh's left eyebrow, and the big hand is just coming up to his right one. So it's uh, time, to, time to get underway. Um, can, can you hear me all right? Yeah. There, there's no need to turn the mic on, I don't think. Uh, I get lots of complaints, but hey, Beresford, you're too quiet isn't usually one of them. <laughs> so, um, yeah, right, I'll, I'll try and be brief. Uh, normally, what I do is, when, when the last person's gone, I'll, I'll start to wind up, so no problems there. Um, okay, what we're going to look at, really, in, in this session, and what we're doing at the conference this year, is in the kind of like the seminars, we wanted to make sure that irrespective of where the main speaker was taking us relative to what biblical church is all about, we wanted to make sure that in, in the seminars, at least all the basics the things that we would say, this is what a biblical church is. We wanted to make sure that all these individual component parts were being represented and taught on, so that people who were maybe new to it could, uh, you know, kind of pick up, you know, what it's all about, get the whole picture, and those who already know what the whole picture is about a biblical church can avoid these seminars like the plague and go find something more interesting. And uh, so, basically, what I'm doing this morning is, is, is going to be a kind of an overall view and going to be answering the basic question of what is a church? And if you think about it, it's only when you actually know what something is that you know what to do with it. What do you do with church? Well, before you know what to do with anything, you've got to know what it is. When you realise that that bug-eyed monster in the corner of your lounge is for watching Star Trek on, you know what to do with a TV set. And so what we've got to do is ask the question, so what is a church? Now, you won't find the church in the Old Testament. Because during the Old Testament, the church was an idea whose time hadn't yet come. Church was for after God became a man in Jesus. But in the Old Testament, what you find are foreshadowings, are pictures, are symbols of greater truths that were to come later. And a good way to understand maybe the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament, and this is kind of a bit simplistic, but it's, it's, a, good, it's, you know, it's a good thing to hold in your mind, is that let's, let's say that, that, that the New Testament is the script. Well, in the Old Testament, you watch the movie. That if you've got in the New Testament the truth, the doctrine, if you like, in the Old Testament, we find that doctrine played out in human history. So everything, all the truth that was coming from the time of Jesus onwards, that is now our New Covenant, the New Testament, is all there in picture form. You wouldn't necessarily... If you just read the Old Testament, you couldn't guess, oh, yes, this is a picture for this truth that's coming. You could never do that. But once you know New Testament truth, you look back and you say, wow, there it is in the Old Testament. And so what, what we're going to do is to have a look at a, just um, a couple of the foreshadowings in the Old Testament of what church was going to be all about. There are various ones, but I just want to home in on two of them. Now, if you turn to Exodus and chapter 25, and the first thing that we're going to look at is what was called the tabernacle. Now, you'll remember that um, the tabernacle was a tent that as Israel travelled through the wilderness, it was a tent that they erected and they would go into that tent to meet with the Lord. Let's, let's read Exodus 25 
and I'm going to read the first part of verse 8, and then I'm going to read verse 9. So Exodus 25, the first part of verse 8 says this. Um, then have them, this is God speaking, have them make a sanctuary for me. A sanctuary. Then go down into verse 9. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So the point is, Israel has come out of Egypt, and that's a picture of getting saved, coming to know Jesus, being saved out of the world. But they're travelling through the wilderness into a land in which they were going to live. Now Canaan, this land they were travelling to, was a place of permanence. But while they were going through the wilderness, they were wandering. They were going the long way round. They were heading somewhere permanent, but they were going somewhere mobile. They were mobile pe people. And so what happened was, is that God said, look, make a tent for me, and what will happen is, I will come and presence myself in that tent. Now, let's just read Exodus 25 and the second part of verse 8. And what the Lord said is, he said, have them make a sanctuary for me. And he says, and I will dwell amongst them. So this tabernacle, what was it going to be? Well, it was going to be the place where God wanted to live while he was travelling with his people through the wilderness. At this time, what were the Jews living in? Tents. And God said, hey, I'll have one. So, they had a pretty big one, bigger than any of their tents, because, well, the Lord's just that much bigger than his people, isn't he? And so, you know, they set up this tent, and here, in this verse, I will dwell among them. This is the first time in the Bible that we have the word dwell. And to dwell means to live, to live in. And it's God coming to live amongst his people. So the tabernacle was quite simply this. It was God's new address. God was moving home. Obviously, God lives in heaven, always has done, always will do. But in his special presence amongst his people, we have here Almighty God's first address on planet Earth. Um, let's actually look at Exodus 29. Exodus 29, I'm going to read verse 42 to 46. Now, this is the second time that the word dwell is used in the Bible, okay? Exodus 29, verse 42 and 46. And uh, we read... Let me find it. Um, right. Yeah, for the generations to come... Let me just make sure I've got the right Exodus 20. Yeah, I have. For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting, that's what the tabernacle was called, the tent of meeting, before the Lord. There I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites, and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites. There it is. I will live among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So what he's saying, give me a tent. You got one? I'm going to have one, and I'm going to come and live amongst you. 
And what we're going to see now, if you turn still in Exodus, but I'm going to read from verse 40, because obviously when somebody says, hey, build me somewhere to live, here they were erecting a tent, obviously eventually comes moving day. And in Exodus chapter 40, the tent is erected, just as the Lord said he wanted it to be. And in Exodus 40, verse 17, So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in places, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars, and set up the posts. Now go down to verse 34. Then the cloud, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So what we've got here now is moving in day. You won't see the moving van, but here is God moving into his new home. And the sign of God presencing himself moving in was this cloud and this, this kind of the glory of the Lord. And you'll remember that once Israel was in the wilderness, God presenced himself amongst them in the form of a, a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And what happened was when the cloud moved on, Israel moved on. When the cloud stopped, Israel would you know, strike camp and they'd stay there until the cloud moved on. And what Israel came to call this manifestation of the presence of God was the Shekinah glory. Now, that's not a biblical word, you won't find that word in the Old Testament, but it comes from the Hebrew Shechan, which means to dwell. So what they called this was the glory of the dwelling presence of God. That's what it was. God is living amongst us. That's his tent over there. And you know that he's in, well, because the glory of the Lord is all around it. And uh, so there was God living amongst his people in a tent just like they were. Now then, eventually, eventually, Israel got into the land of Canaan and a place of permanence. And they took it over, the Lord gave it to them. And of course now, they are not living in tents anymore because they're somewhere permanent. They're now living in houses. But the Lord stayed living in the tent for another 500 years. Now think about it. Isn't it incredible to know that the Lord lived in a tent because that's where his people were living? God always wants to be amongst us in a way that identifies with us. And yet, even when Israel got into Canaan, God was much more concerned with getting them settled in their houses. He was quite happy to stay in his now humble tent. Because the Lord's like that. He thinks about us more than he thinks of himself. Thank heavens he thinks about us more than he thinks. Well, what chance would any of us have? But now, if you go to 2 Samuel... We get to the point where the, uh, the Jews have changed their living arrangements to Samuel 7. And uh, so let's see um, that eventually the Lord decided to change his. So what we're going to see now is God's second address on the earth. And 2 Samuel chapter 7 and uh, the first two verses. Oops, I'm in 1 Samuel, let's get to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 7 and the first two verses. After the king, and this is now King David, 500 years after getting into Canaan, after the king was settled in his palace 
and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. So what David is saying, he's saying, hey look, I've got a big palace, we've all got our houses, the Lord is still in a tent. And David said, that's not right. Now, as you will be aware of, because David was a man of war, God said to him, hey look, great idea David, lovely to know that you're thinking of me, <laughs> alright, I'm just thinking of you, but God loves it when his people think of him back. That's called, that's called the obedience of love, you see. And, uh, you know, and, and, and so God said, great idea, but I'll tell you what, I want your son's going to build me a house. And so it was Solomon. And if we go now into 1 Kings, 1 Kings, and uh, find chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 2 to 5. 1 King chapter 5. Solomon sent back this message to Hiram. You know that because of the wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build a temple for the name of the Lord his God until he put the Lord put his enemies under his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side and there is no adversary or disaster. I intend therefore to build a temple and a temple is a permanent residence of stone in contrast to a tent which is made of, you know, man-made fibre or, or natural fibres, but it's not solid and it is only temporary. So here is God's permanent abode. And, uh, and it says, so give orders, uh, sorry, he says, uh, the Lord uh, said, sorry, the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord told my father David when he said, your son, whom I will put on the throne in your place, will build a temple for my name. And so, here is God's second residence now being built. And if we go over to 2 Chronicles, because what comes next? You have a new place built for you? Well, moving day comes along. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and the first two verses, we read this. When Solomon finished praying, now you remember, they finished uh, erecting the tabernacle, and they gave it to the Lord, and the Lord moved in. They've now finished building the temple, God's second address, and now look what happens. Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. So here we have the Shekinah glory and God moves into his temple. So what we've seen is this. Obviously, God's permanent address is heaven. I don't know what number. Uh, I don't know the zip code. But that is God's permanent address. But he created planet Earth. One day, heaven is going to be on planet Earth and we're going to share homes. But the point is, God will always live in heaven. But he said, but I want to live with my people as well. So he moved into a tent when Israel was in the wilderness. Now Israel are in solid homes, permanent places of residence, and so now God moves in. Address number two. So, let's keep following this progression. After the temple, and there were, there were two or three of them, but after the temple, we've got to ask this, right, okay, so did God have any more changes of address? Or did he just stay in the temple? Well, obviously not. It's not there anymore for a start. So, where did God move afterwards? Well, let's see God's third address on planet Earth. And if you go to John and chapter 2, John and chapter 2, and uh, find verse 19, 
and we read this, John 2, and I'm going to read from verses 19 to 21. Um, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and he was talking about the temple of Herod that was there in his day. He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, hey, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, you're going to raise it in three days. And then John says, but the temple that he had spoken of was his body. Ah, now there's a big clue about God's third address on planet Earth. Go back to John chapter 1 and let us read verse 14. You know that the first verse in John is, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God from the beginning. But listen to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And do you know what that word dwell means in the Greek? It means to tabernacle, to live in a tent. It's simply the Greek equivalent of shikan, dwelling in a tent, as we saw in the Old Testament. And so, what we see here is that God's third address on planet Earth is now he's living, not in the tabernacle, not in the temple in Jerusalem, he's living in Jesus' body. Why would God be living in Jesus' body? Well, it's because Jesus was God become a man. That's why God was living in Jesus' body. Jesus was the Lord God. I live in my body. When God became a man called Jesus, he lived in his body. It's as simple as that. And if you go to Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, and uh, we'll read verse 19, and Paul says, and he's speaking here of Jesus, he says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And then if you go to chapter 2, and I'll read you verse 9, when Paul writes, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So here we have address number three. Now, God is not living in a tent while his people lived in tents. He's not now living in a temple while his people lived in their solid houses. What God has done now is he's taken the plan a bit further. He's not dwelling amongst his people in the way he used to. He has now become one of his people. He has actually become a human being. Now, let's ask, right, that's the end of the story. It's got to be. I mean, how do you top that? What further addresses could God possibly have? Well, let's, let's continue. Go back to John's Gospel. And in John, chapter 14, what on earth could address number four possibly be? John 14, and I'm going to read verse 16 and 17 first. Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. 
the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you, up to that point, but will be in you. So here Jesus says, well, the Holy Spirit is going to live in you. But now, let's move further down and go to verse 23. Because Jesus continues by saying, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What is Jesus saying here? He is saying that the fullness of God, we refer to the Trinity, we have to, we have to fall back on inadequate words to try and encapsulate truths that we know are true but we can't explain. But God exists in three persons. And here, the Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit is now not living in Jesus, the Father lived in Jesus, the Spirit lived in Jesus, Jesus in whom they lived was the third person of the Godhead. But now all three of them move into his disciples. So what we have now is that God lives in a tent? No. In a temple? No. In Jesus? Yes, of course. But now, the Father and the Son in Jesus, with Jesus, has now moved into believers. Now, this is called something, of course, something that is true individually and corporately. Now, we're dealing here with church, we're dealing with the corporate. But the point is, obviously, Jesus, the Father and the Holy Spirit, live in each believer individually. But we're going to be concentrating on the church, our corporate relationship. Because if it's true that the Lord lives in me and the Lord lives in you, that gives you and I something in common that is so powerful, it gives us a possibility of community and relationship way outside anything that had ever existed before. And that's what we're going to look at. So now the question is, we saw when God moved into the tabernacle. We saw when the day came. We saw the day when God moved into the temple. We didn't see the day when God moved into Jesus, but that was the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Now, when did God move into address number four? Well, if you go to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, sorry, Acts chapter 2, And um, let's read um, verses 1 to 4. Now, just ask your question, does this remind you of something we've already seen? When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now this is strange stuff. It had never happened before. But does it not to you bear all the marks of the Shekinah glory moving into yet another home? Because that's exactly what is happening here. The Shekinah glory moves into the corporate body of believers. 
The church of Jesus is now born. It's the corporate body of believers in whom the Lord God lives. Now, let me take you back to verse 15 in the previous chapter, Acts 1. And I just want to, I don't want to push this a great deal, all right? But uh, maybe important. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. Now, for reasons I won't go into in the Greek, when you get about, it means exactly, but I, I, I won't go into that. There are 120 believers gathered together on the day of Pentecost. When the Shekinah glory, when the Holy Spirit fell on the church, well, fell on believers and made them the church for the first time, there are 120 of them. Now then, if you just go back with me to 2, two Chronicles, and uh, in, in 2 Chronicles, chapter 5, now this relates to the temple, God's second address, once uh, Israel was in the Promised Land. And, um, and 2 Chronicles, now chapter 7 is, is, is an account of the moving in, but in 2 Chronicles 5, verse 12, we just get a little bit of information about the, what was going on in the temple prior to God moving in. And uh, in, in 2 Chronicles, chapter 5, I'm going to read verse 12. All the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun, and their sons and relatives, stood on the east side of the altar, dressed in the linen and playing cymbals, harps, and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. Now, throughout the Bible, trumpets are a picture of a new thing that God is proclaiming that he's about to do. Here, when God was about to move into the temple, there were 120 people playing trumpets, and they were priests, heralding that God was about to move in. I just put it to you, seeing as one of the reasons the church is here is to trumpet the love of Jesus, is it a coincidence that there are 120 believers on the day of Pentecost? I don't think so. Because it's a picture, these Old Testament pictures, tabernacle and temple, are telling us something about a greater truth, a greater experience, a greater fulfilment of God's plan that is further down the road. And so once we get into the New Testament, all this is happening. And the church is now in existence. Now, go with me to 1 Peter. Um, I'm, I'm sorry if all this Bible hopping is wearisome, but I, I, I don't want you to take anything from me. <laughs> you know, you've got to be happy that what I'm saying is what the Bible says. So, 1, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. Um, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, let's just... Um, where, where shall we start? 1, 1 Peter chapter 2... Yeah, let's, let's just read from verse 4. As you come to him the living stone. Now, who's he talking to? Believers coming together. Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There you have Peter saying, we're the temple now. God doesn't live in the temple of bricks. He lives in us, the temple of flesh and blood, his people. Go, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And in verse 19, Paul says, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, what's significant about that verse is that here is Paul appealing to believers as individuals, 
not to commit adultery or not to be immoral because he says that is the only sin against your body and he says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit so here he's addressing that God in his fullness lives in every individual believer but if you now go over to 2 Corinthians and find chapter 6 and in verse 16 we read um, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols for we are the temple of the living God so there you've got the fact that Paul is saying and corporately we are the temple of the living God and it's this corporate aspect of believers coming together that we're going to see is what the church is all about so what we've got is this we've come where does God live today well, obviously, he still lives in heaven. He doesn't live in the tabernacle anymore. He doesn't live in the temple anymore. He does still live in Jesus, but he also, with the Spirit and Jesus, lives in us. So fundamentally, where does God live today? He lives in the church. The church, and underline this in red ink three times, the church is Jesus' home. Now, you will have probably heard a lot of theology, systematic or otherwise. Now, 90% of it will have been good because it's laying out truths that we need to know. But sometimes it can all be very dusty. It can all be very dusty. Underline it, the church is Jesus' home. Now, you could come and visit Blinder and I in England and you could, you could, you know, sort of come and stay with us and you could, you could spend your days writing down the colour of the curtains, um, how big's the backyard? Uh, what sort of washing machine does Belinda have? And all that is good and accurate information about our home. But in another way, it's not. If you want to find out about what being at home with Beres, Belinda and Bethany is about, just come and hang out with us. Can you see? The home is important. But this is what I mean. Theology gives you the details that you need to know. But the church is Jesus' home. It's where he lives. And in Matthew 16, verse 18, we have one of the really well-known sayings of Jesus. I will build my church. But what people don't often know, there are different words in the Greek for build. The word that Jesus used, the, the word that the inspired writer of Scripture in that instance used for build, is a Greek word oikodomeo, and it means specifically to build a house. And this is why the New Testament calls the church the body of Christ. Remember what I said earlier. I live in my body. That's where I live. Where does God live in his body? Well, get this. I live in my body. So does Jesus live in my body. You live in your body. So does Jesus live in your body if you're a disciple of Jesus. That's why the church is the body of Christ. We live in our body. We are the body of Christ. We are where Jesus lives. Now, Jesus still has his glorified body in heaven. Jesus still physically in his glorified body lives in heaven. But he lives on earth too, so he's got a body in heaven. He wanted one on earth as well. And that's us. The church is Jesus' home. It's his body. It's where he lives. So because Jesus lives in two places at once, heaven and earth, that makes you and I... Do you remember, uh, you know, the whole thing about Checkpoint Charlie during the Cold War, the place in Germany where the Free West 
met the communist east and there was the, it was called Checkpoint Charlie it was where two totally different worlds met well the church is the Checkpoint Charlie between heaven and earth and this is why one of the pictures we had in the Old Testament was of a temple with priests because priests mediate between God and man and this is why you and I because we're the temple we're also priests because if you know Jesus you can bring anyone to Jesus you can mediate between God and man so we are the divine checkpoint Charlie between heaven and earth now we've just got to clear up another point and that we've got to understand that the church exists in different kind of not forms but different ways there is for instance what theologians call the church universal now what the church universal is all about is the fact that every believer throughout history every believer alive today plus every believer who's not even born again yet you see in the future people who aren't even physically born throughout that church age Every believer, past, present and future, is part of the body of Christ. So you get the church universal. I call that the church throughout space and time. So I don't know if Spock ever got saved, but uh, he's in the mix somewhere. I mean, I'm sure that Captain Kirk was a Christian. He was such a good guy. But that's, that's 400 years into the future. The Federation hasn't formed yet. But can you see, we have the church throughout space and time. But then secondly, we have what uh, the theologians call the church militant i.e. every believer on the earth at any given point in time across the world. Now I refer to that as the, um, the church throughout space at any given time. Okay, and uh, you know, so, so this is the way the church breaks down. But of course in any given moment, you've obviously got far more believers than could ever be in one church. They're still the church corporately because Jesus lives in all of us. But this church is broken down into smaller units, into nations and towns. But ultimately, what we see in the New Testament is that the smallest constituent part of the church... So now we're boiling down to what church is in the sense of we're talking about. We're talking about the church that you would actually be part of in an individual locality. What we see in Scripture universally is that the smallest unit were churches that simply met in people's homes. And so therefore, a church, we're not now talking about the church, now we've boiled it down to a church. I am part of a church in England. I'm part of the church in England. I'm part of the church throughout space and time. But I'm part of a church in England. And that's the church at the level that impacts on us because that's the church that you're actively part of. So we can define it now that a church, as I've described, is God's home. That's what we're seeing. It's where the Lord lives. Now let's just make a fundamental point. Is For most people throughout history, and there are always exceptions to this, but where your home is, is where your family is. Home is indivisible from family. Now, you get students who go away to college and university, but eventually they marry and have their own family, their own home. So home in the Bible is totally tied up with family. Your home is where your family is. So what we've got now is a further definition of a church. A church is an extended family of God. And when you've said that, you've really said just about everything that needs to be said. But because I'm me, I'm going to find some more to say. So um, if we just look at 1 Timothy, because as I say, I get a lot of complaints, but hey, Beresford, you don't talk enough, isn't one of them either. 
So, um, 1, 1 Timothy, chapter 3, and uh, let's read verse, uh, verses 14 to 15. Um, and we get this. Although I hope to come and see you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. He's writing to a group of believers. He defines their church as the house of God, which is their household, their family, the family unit in which they live. So a church is a family of God. Now in the Bible we have lots of pictures in the New Testament of church. And they tell us lots of important things. But they're pictures. For instance, we're likened to a flock of sheep. Now, there are lots of things that we can learn about church from a flock of sheep. But if any of you think you are literally sheep, perhaps you could give me a bah now. No takers. The church is likened in the New Testament to being a field of corn, a harvest field. And there's a lovely picture. We can learn so much from that. And if there are any sheaves of corn here, literally, would you wave in the wind for me for a little while? No. These are pictures. There's nothing literal about them. And the point is, they go so far but no further. Sheep are mindless. But that's not what we learn from that picture. We just pick out the things from the picture that are consistent with the rest of Scripture. But there's something in the Bible, a concept, that gets thought of as a picture and it's not. When I say that the church, a church, is an extended family of God, that is not a picture. It is literal. We are literally brothers and sisters. That's not a picture. That is literal. God is literally our Father. That's not a picture. Jesus is literally our big brother. That's not a picture. It is the literal truth because we are quite literally the family of God. So what we're going to start to look at now is we're going to ask a question, well, what is it that families do when they come together? I mean, you know, it's pretty usual to at least one day a week, maybe off, uh, you know, more often than that, but, you know, we, we like to get the family together. And what do families do when they come together? Well, what they tend to do is they hang out, they relate to each other, there's time often when the whole family is, you know, addressing the whole family, so everyone is together in that time, and... You can build each other up, just whatever's needed. And, uh, you know, and then if, if you're a pretty normally fa normal family, you're, you're, you're going to have a meal together. And where's this going to take place? Well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take place, presumably, in one of the houses of one of the members of that particular family. And so what we're going to ask now is this. Well, so if we've established that a church is a family of God, then if we ask the question, okay, so how does the Bible tell us that churches ought to be set up? How, how, how do they function? I mean, what do you do? Our first question, 
What do you do with a TV? Well, you watch Star Trek on it. It's obvious, isn't it? So I can say, well, what do you do with a church? Well, we've established a TV is a TV. It's for watching Star Trek on. We've established that a church is a family. It's for being family in. So now we're going to say, well, so, so does the Bible show us what we're meant to do when we come together? And if it does, and I'm going to show you that it does, then is it not logical that we might expect for it to actually be consistent with the idea that we are an extended family. So, what I want to, to just put before you is that when, when we turn to the New Testament, we actually have in its pages a blueprint that the apostles passed on to churches for how churches ought to set up, how they ought to function. Um, and sort of how you do church. Now, I've, I've done in talks elsewhere, and this is all in the tradition series that uh, you know, we did here two years ago at the conference, that, 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 that when it boils down to this, this isn't a matter of biblical interpretation. Amongst Bible scholars, there is no disagreement about what the early churches were like and that they were all the same. I mean, it's just, just, just the case. And so, what I want to just show you is that this, this kind of blueprint has four constituent parts to it. We observe four things universally about the early church. The first thing we observe is that their leadership was not a hierarchy in any form. So each church was just an independent grouping. They would relate to each other as other churches. But any leadership was simply <coughs> through kind of brothers who were raised up from within the assembly having been recognised by the people. The Bible calls them variously elders, pastors, shepherds, bishops, overseers. These, these are all synonymous terms in the Bible for the same guys. It's not a position, it's a function. It's not something you are, it's something you do. And, and, and so we see that any leadership that there was in the early church was simply the recognised older brothers who had proven their lives because they'd been with those people for so long. And that was it. They held no authority over the church. The only authority they had was moral authority. They weren't in a position over the church. And there wasn't anyone outside the church over that church. They didn't have hierarchies over networks of churches or anything like that at all. Even the original apostles didn't operate like that. They moved heaven and earth to get every church to not need them anymore. But they were there if you needed them. But they didn't come in the big denominational leaders, anything like that at all. So you have a completely homegrown, plural, co-equal, non-hierarchical leadership in each church as God raises it up. That's it. The theologians won't disagree with that. The second thing, we find that every time churches are located, it's in people's houses. Okay, is that important? Well, let's ask the question. Why did the early church not build buildings for worship? Everyone else did. Every believer in the New Testament came from a Greek, well, sorry, a pagan or a Jewish background. The Jews had their synagogues and their temple. All the pagans, every pagan religion known at the time of the early church was, was based in religious buildings. The early church conspicuously wasn't. The answer is, they never needed buildings because... As they were meeting in houses, what they did when they came together necessitated that numbers were small. 
Because when they came together, and we know it was the first day of the week, that was when they came together, when a church will come together, okay, then the two other aspects of how a church functions was that when they came together, there were a coin here with two sides. One side of the coin is that there would be completely open sharing together. The early church had no services. I'll say that again. The early church had no services. I'll say that again. The early church didn't have services. What they would do, they were just sitting round in a circle in the living room. And when they came together, it says, each one has. No one led it. Because they didn't have that sort of leaders. Each one was free to take part as the Holy Spirit moved through them. So that was the first side of the coin. And in that time, then that part of each one hath is, there's prayer in there, there's worship, there's singing. There are the gifts of the Spirit, there's teaching, there's revelation, there's exhorting each other. The whole idea is to build each other up. You've had a week in the world and it's rubbed off on us. It's dragged us down. We need to recharge. We come together as a church. We build each other up ready for the next week. That's why it's the first day of the week, to get you ready for the week's come. And that was just a total open participatory thing with no one leading out. You know, no one leading it, just hanging out together. The second side of the coin is that they had a celebratory meal. They ate together the Lord's Supper, and it was a meal. Now then, let's put those things together. All right. When churches come together, there's, there's, there's no authoritarian, you know, kind of hierarchy because what we're dealing with here is an organism. It's not an organisation. So people come together. There's no organisational hierarchy over it, anything like that. They're in homes. They hang out together. They eat together. Isn't that what families do? But what have we seen? A church is a family. So what would we expect? <laughs> I mean, you know, if you've got a family, you know, I mean, you know, sort of like, you know, a, a family where you go to a family gathering and there's dad up front in his best suit and he's leading a kind of a community singing, then he makes a speech for three quarters of an hour and then he dismisses you all. If you're lucky, you might get a cup of coffee and then you'll go home again. Family gathering? Dysfunctional family. Okay? <laughs> Now, what happened with the early church is that when the apostles died, the leaders who emerged after that, and, uh, you know, sort of like who, who became the influence in the church, completely lost sight of what the apostles taught. And they changed it. They changed it completely. And what they did is they moved church away from being family and they made it an organisation. And the changes they made were this. The first thing they did is they introduced hierarchical priesthood. By the early part of the second century, you couldn't even be baptised without the bishop okaying it. That's how fast it went. The first thing they did was they introduced hierarchical priesthood, a caste system between believers. Immediately, the things led from the front. Okay? Um, the Lord's Supper as a full meal became inconvenient because of abuses like happened at Corinth. So they junked the meal and what they said is we'll have bread and wine services. So now we've got hierarchical leadership. We have you come together and you kind of sit, it's led from the front. So you don't participate, you sit and listen and the leader leads everything. Okay. 
Uh, so the participatory thing's gone. The, the Lord's Supper is a full meal of gone. You've just got bread and wine in another little service after the one you've already had, for heaven's sake. And then lastly, when the Roman Empire, you know, supposedly became Christian and said, hey, you can have all the religious temples. We don't want them anymore. They thought, oh, great. And it was the logical conclusion to move into religious buildings. And we've been there ever since. The fathers changed the church from being family to becoming an organisation. Now, let me just ask this question. I'm just showing you, and theologians aren't going to agree with it, aren't going to challenge me on this. I'm just showing you how the early church was. Now, where, where I would disagree with most others is that I think we should do it like that. I think the apostles knew best. They think the fathers knew best. I disagree with that. So let's ask a question. I've shown you very quickly what a New Testament church was like. And we're saying here, we should still be like it. Nothing should have changed. Ask a question. What's the opposite of meeting in homes? Well, this is a philosophical point, but how about me not meeting in homes? Yeah? Anywhere. Religious buildings, you know, hired halls. Big, big, big. You're supposed to be small. It's big that you don't want. Because if you're big, you can't all take part and you can't have the Lord's Supper as a full meal. So the opposite of meeting in homes is, you know, meeting in, in buildings. What, what's the opposite to open sharing, everyone free to take part? Well, services, led from the front. What's the opposite of having the Lord's Supper as a full meal? Well, not having it as a full meal and having some bread and wine variation. And uh, what's, what's the opposite of having leadership that is non-hierarchical, it's plural, it's co-equal, it's indigenous, i.e. homegrown, um, and, uh, you know, what is the opposite of that? Well, the opposite of that is the idea of having an hierarchically authorised man, single, over the church, who you import from the outside. I mean, look, let's, let's hand it to Christians. We have been consistent. We have consistently done the opposite of Scripture. And we have fully done the opposite of Scripture. We haven't been heart-hearted. We have thrown ourselves in to being churches that are the exact opposite to what they should have been. Well, that's at least consistent. Jesus said, I don't like lukewarm, you know, hot or cold. <laughs> but, but now we're saying, okay, enough of that, enough of that. And, and so what, what I want you to get is that th this is a, a whole package, these four things. Non-hierarchical, indigenous leadership that isn't holding a position. So no leader-led divide at all. Coming together in house because you don't need anything other than a house to do what you're supposed to do. Open sharing, participating, the Lord building the church up through every believer gathered, and then having Lord's Supper as a full meal. Now think, think of a house built on four stilts, all right? You know, like maybe, you know, in Seattle they have houses down at the waterfront, okay? A house built on four stills. Now, if you take any one of them away, you're in trouble. This is a package. It's a package deal. Um, you know, and if you want to get the idea of package deal when it comes to design, and we're talking about how God designed the church, you design something to fulfil the function it's supposed to do. I mean, Blinge and I fly a lot now. We, we, we tend, we, we prefer the airlines whose planes have two wings. It's a design thing. You see, now, if, you, if, if you've got a plane, all right, and there it is, it, it's taking you from, you know, across the ocean, a long, long way, okay. Well, you want certain things in that aeroplane. You want more than one wing. That helps. You, you want a kind of symmetry either side, okay. Uh, you, want a, you want a fuselage. Because you want to sit in it. You don't want to hang on to it, all right. 
Uh, you want somewhere for the pilot to sit. That's a good... Yeah, well, cockpit, yeah. yeah. We always check they've got them. And not only that, we want a pilot sitting there, all right, and then a bit of motive power helps. Because <laughs> if there ain't nothing to drive it along, it's not going anywhere. Now, the point is, take any one of those aspects of design away, would you fly with this airline? Oh, yeah. No, we're a good airline. No, we got four out of five. Uh, we don't have any pilots yet, but we'll just put it on auto, press the button, and, and the plane will do the rest. No, if, if you mess with any aspects of the design, you prevent the thing doing what it's designed to do. What's the church designed to do? Well, I thought the church was designed to do what families do. Don't we have little babies and then teach them to grow up right? And isn't, isn't, isn't the church supposed to have little born-again babies? You know, little, you know, I mean, they might be 60 years old, but they get born again, they come to Jesus. Aren't we then supposed to, with our new little spiritual babes, put them in families where they can grow up? Isn't that what we all need to be in families, as John has been saying today? The balance between loving each other unconditionally and, and holding to truth and knowing when correction is needed the balance is bringing the two together. That if correction is needed, and for heaven's sake, it's only a small part. But the point is, Bethany is being raised and corrected and disciplined by Belinda and I, the two people who love her most. We are the very people who accept her unconditionally. But we don't hold back from teaching her that she's got to be good, not bad. And we have to teach her how to be good, because somehow she works out how to be bad without any help from us at all, you see. And, uh, but so do I. <laughs> she got that from Dad. Well, a little bit from Mum as well, I guess. And uh, so, 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 but the point is, and that's called family. So every, when Paul says about growing up together in, into Christ, it's family. So, so that's why when you understand that church is family, it's safe to be discipled. Because you know that everyone loves you just the, uh, just the, way, the way you are. They'll correct you. They want you to be better. They want you to grow up in, 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 into the Lord more and more. And they're all growing up into the Lord more and more. You know, I can't come along and say, oh, you useless little Christian, you sinned. Because I know how much I still sin. There's that love. We're all helping each other. Okay. Now, the other thing to understand is that, that, that this works because people say, what, just a clump of ordinary believers getting together and doing it? You see, because we've, we've, we've all known experience where if you're in the existing churches, you see, it's very presumptuous to think that God can use you if the experts aren't overseeing you because they've been trained. Now, I mean, yeah, any wisdom you can get, get it. But the thing to realise, the reason that this works is for this. We all understand that I spoke earlier about the church universal, the church throughout space and time. And, I mean, you know, there's a million, million teachers out there who bang on that Jesus is Lord of the church universal, and indeed he is. But what we have completely forgotten, and what the early church fathers forgot, was that Jesus is not only the head of the church universal, the church throughout space and time, he is also the head of each individual church. You see? So it's not you muddling through on your own without the experts. It's you muddling through on your own with Jesus and his word. Now, the Lord often brings others from the outside to help. That's why we're all here. But my goodness, if he brings them along, let them help you. But 
What more do you need? We've got Jesus, we've got the truth of his word. Can you see the beauty of this? But of course, what the fathers did was brought about a situation where the experts had to be okaying everything because they were the ones who knew. And the only reason that other believers didn't know more is because for the next thousand years, these guys had planted churches which, which spent a millennium making sure that the average man didn't even see a Bible. They'll only be able to read one because the truth was just too threatening. So, let me sum up like this. Let's, let's picture that uh, you, you go away on holiday, you've got a vacation coming up, and you've, you've brought in an architect and a construction guy and you, you want a, a, a nice kind of, you want a, a, a nice double garage in the backyard, you know, for your car, right? And you, you give him the plans and you say, I want it round there, backyard, here are the plans, nice double garage, I'll, I'll have the old automatic doors, please. Lovely. And you look forward to coming back from on holiday, you've been on vacation, and you're just waiting to drive in and see those doors open, and in you go with your car. And you drive up the road and you turn into your front yard, and there, on your lawn, in front of the windows of the lounge, is a hen house. And you think, I ordered a garage. Now you might want a word with that construction guy. <laughs> and you might want to say, I gave you a design, a blueprint for a garage. And he said, yeah, I know, yeah, yeah, I consulted with others. We all agreed. That's what the blueprint was. It was a garage. And you said, where's my garage? And they said, oh, I thought you might like a hen house. I mean, I know it's different, but, you know, it works. It works. I mean, you can get hens, they'll be so happy in there. Are you going to pay him? <laughs> now, can you see, Jesus has given us Via the teaching of the apostles, he gave the apostles, by revelation, everything that we now have in the New Testament. He gave it to the apostles. The apostles gave it to the early churches. That's why they were all the same, because no one had thought up unbiblical churches yet. That came later. And because we've got it all written down, Jesus gave it to us in here. Okay? So he has given us a blueprint that his people would all be part of a little church. Related to all the other little churches, when you get too big, you split up, bang, two churches. Wonderful, that's how we grow. And he wants us to be like a family, to come together. No hierarchy, hanging out together, eating together, sharing him together, extending our lives, our families into each other. Not obtrusively, not that the lines are blurred, Belinda and I and Bethany are a family quite distinct from the church family, but we're part of a wider family. See? And that's what Jesus wanted. And he looks down and what are we giving him? Numbers of Christians gathering together on the Lord's Day, incidentally the only thing that the early church fathers didn't change, because it was the only thing that didn't make any difference to their power. What does it matter when, what day you meet? I mean, you know, you dominate, you know, what does it matter what day you dominate people on? So they, they were happy with keeping it the first day of the week. The only thing that remains of the biblical pattern, okay, and Jesus looks down, he sees us going into religious buildings, we sit there having fellowship with the back of someone's neck, there's someone up the front who we pay to do what the word of God says we're supposed to be doing. And we say, Lord, we give you your church. And he says, oh, well, at least I've got somewhere to put my hands now. I wanted a garage from a car. You see, it's totally... Now, we're not saying that what's out there isn't church. We've all been part, well, I'm sure most of us have been part of unbiblical churches. We're not saying that unbiblical churches aren't churches. We're just saying they're not biblical. 
But we don't want to fight with anyone, we just want to get on and plant biblical churches. Think of it like this. We know that a family is supposed to be mum, dad and the kids, and if you're lucky, in-laws that you don't have to run away from all the time, you know. And, uh, you know, sort of, and, and that, that's family, and the kids grow up and that's family. But when you look at families today, you see, you know, mum on her own, dad on their own, or mum and dad together but arguing all the time, and, you know, no one takes care of the kids, mum's too busy earning loads of money as well as dad because they want a big lifestyle, so the kids are out on the streets causing trouble, stuff like that. Now then, is it a family? Yes, yeah, a family. Is it a biblical family? No, it's a dysfunctional family. And the kids will grow up all wrong. Now then, what we've come out of is church, but it's dysfunctional church. And do you know the tragedy? We all grew up wrong in it. This is why it's so hard for us to get back to what we should be. So what we're saying is that we simply want biblical churches, which are simply family, to be family, God's extended family. And, and, and to that, that will minimise the risk of becoming dysfunctional. And remember as well, this is my last point, and then we'll chuck it open for you know, uh, people to come back with whatever, that um, we're not doing this because we just think it's time for a change. That's not what we're about. Dan made this clear in his introductions yesterday. We're not about this because we think we've come up with something that works better. We're at this because it's what we see in the Bible. Now, if, if I saw in the Bible churches in big buildings with hierarchical leadership and services, and well, that's what I do. I don't think I'd like it anymore, <laughs> but that's what I do. But thank heavens, that isn't what the Lord designed. We're about this because it's what the Bible says. And if it's what the Bible says, it's what God wants. Now then, if you're in the blessed position, and some are and some aren't, to be able to build your home, you, you buy some land and you say, Honey, I'm sounding so American. What? I said, Honey? Darling, <laughs> God, dear, oh dear, darling, let's design our own house. We've got the money we can pay to have our own house built. Now, if it's your money, if it's your house, at bare minimum, you want it built your way. The church is Jesus' house. Let's build it his way. That's what we're saying. Anyway, if anyone wants to come back on that, please do. Yes? I'd like for you to expand the charge that's just your opinion about how the Right, okay. Um, perhaps firstly, I'll, I'll just say that um, if, you, if you look at Bible scholarship, I mean, for instance, on our church website, um, we've actually, in our, uh, that's www.house-church.org, right? You'll find a, a, a lot of the material in written form there um, which I presented two years ago when we did the traditions things. And what, what, what that information is all about is that um, there, there's tons of references from acknowledged evangelical Bible scholarship. So the top guys. Now what they all have in common is that they're all in unbiblical churches. But what I've done is I've put quote after quote after quote from their books and commentaries about each of the four things that I've defined and quote after quote after quote from lots of them as well, showing that they, are apt, that they have no doubt in their mind at all that what I have said is, the, is, is a biblical church is what it was. 
So, so there's loads of evangelical scholarship where, where, where you can just turn to their commentaries and their writings, and where they're simply bringing out what the Bible says, they are in complete agreement. The early church was exactly like I've said. So firstly, I, I always direct people, because I don't, you know, this thing about it's just your interpretation, Beresford, okay, it's not. It's the virtually universal agreement of all Bible scholars. If you ask an expert, these so-called experts, tell me, you know, what the early church was like. They will tell you in their works, and they'll tell you what I've told you today. The difference is they don't believe we should still do it like that. They believe the early church fathers brought an evolution in the church, that it was God wanting to change the church. But the thing is, it goes against what the New Testament teaches, so I maintain we should still be like that. So that's, that's the first thing. So, I mean, I, you know, I refer you there. The traditions tapes can be got, just let Steve know, um, and, you know, refer to the website, all that is there. So I, I certainly present all the modern scholarship, and some, you know, more ancient as well, um, that, uh, you know, that concurs all these points that I've made. It's not just my interpretation of Scripture. If someone is just asking, what were the churches like that the apostles founded, well, they'll all say the same thing. And of course they will. We're all reading the same New Testament. And when people say, now nah, this is just interpretation, those people are uninformed. They haven't done their homework properly. Another just quick example, all right, for every reference of churches in the New Testament, where does every reference locate churches as meeting on the Lord's Day? In someone's house. In someone's house. Now, other people will say, oh yeah, but eventually God led them into special buildings. Sorry, where's that in the Bible? Now, the thing is that if there are things not in the Bible that don't go against the Bible, fine. There weren't cars in the Bible, but there's nothing about cars that goes against it. That's fine. But when we see the church universally doing the same thing, and then we say, after the canon of Scripture closed, God changed it. Well, what's the point of God giving us the canon of Scripture if we cannot, from that alone, know how we're supposed to be? So, in effect, it boils down to revelation after the completion of the Bible. Now, what I can't buy into, I mean, I'm the first to say there's an awful lot wrong in the charismatic movement, but I totally, I'm absolutely one with the gifts of the Spirit, and we need them. But what gets me is that there are many of these people in churches, they will, they will point and I mean, yeah, there are people in the charismatic movement who think that you can get extra revelation from the Bible, like new doctrines. That is an error. That isn't what prophecy is supposed to do. And these guys, they'll say, look at those charismaniacs. You know, they're coming up with the idea that you can have revelation after the closing of the New Testament canon. And I agree with them, you can't. So why do they do church the way they do? Because they believe the early church fathers were inspired by God. Even though what they taught went against what the apostles taught. Well, that's a double standard. You can't, you know, you can't, um, you know, fault someone for believing a doctrine that was given by prophecy if it goes against the Bible, if you're doing church in exactly the same way. Now, actually, I can. If someone came through with a prophecy presenting a new doctrine, I would say, no, 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 that's not a prophecy. If it goes against the Bible, it's not a prophecy. You can have prophecies that don't go against the Bible, God's now word, but it will always be in harmony with the Bible. But you see, I can judge prophecy truly because I'm being consistent in applying what the Bible teaches. But you can't have one person 
who's saying, oh no, you know, sort of like, prophecy has extra biblical revelation. No way. When their whole church structure is based on extra biblical revelation. That's hypocrisy. So that, that would be my answer. It's simply what you see. If you ask the question, did the, did the early church have the Lord's Supper as a full meal? Okay? Well, I'll ask you a question. This is a rhetorical question. But let's say you're sitting here from an institutional church. How's your love feast going? See? Well, question answered. What on earth are these love feasts that the Bible referred to? Now, I, I can demonstrate the Lord's Supper as a full meal through a hundred different ways in the Bible, but that's just an example. If you're going to say the Lord's Supper, no, full meal, no, 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 bread and wine services. Okay, where are your love feasts? What on earth were the love feasts? The love feast was a synonymous term for the Lord's Supper, period. I mean, the, word, the Lord's Supper, the Greek word, supper, date non, means the main meal of the day. Doesn't mean anything else. Doesn't mean train. Doesn't mean helicopter. Doesn't mean bread and wine service. It means a main meal. And the early church, they had the one loaf and the one cup, they had that as part of a meal. And the whole thing, the bread and the wine, as part of the meal, equal the Lord's Supper. Take any bit out, not quite the Lord's Supper. Uh, yeah? Absolutely. And uh, it's right that Corinthians uh, chapter 14 starts limiting some of these, this, this freedom that they were experiencing. And, uh, and especially you know, in verse 14, if it passes, rather than you come together, each of you has a psalm, each of you has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, interpretation, that all things be done decently, and that all these things be done for edification. And then he goes on to say, um, you know, that two or three Yeah, yeah, so, so the question is, in the context of what I'm saying about the nature of what churches did when they come together, given Paul's warnings that things shouldn't then be chaotic and, and there, there is a decent and in order, what, what are the safeguards? Now, perhaps if I could just ask, you know, answer that by presuming to say the seminar I'll be doing here after lunch is exactly on that subject. That is exactly what it is. So perhaps, um, could I answer that then? Um, you know, because that's exactly the thing that we're looking at. But, but, but of course, just, you know, to say here, the whole point was, this thing, all things done decently and in order, and the rules, the ground rules, were given in the context of when you come together, everyone is free to take part. And indeed, these are the very scriptures that describe to us what it was like when the early church came together. So, uh, yeah, but we'll certainly be looking at that whole subject and all the safeguards in, in, in my next talk. Yeah. Yes, please, sir. Yep. with others of like mind and you yeah. don't necessarily wait for uh, mm. you know, another Peter to come along but there are those who would say that what, what is the proper role if any 
Yeah, it's absolutely clear from the scripture that, 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 that one of the bunch of gifts, there are different bunches of different types of gifts that God gives to the church, and one of the bunches of gifts are actually, they're men, all right? They're men with ministries. They're not, I mean, you could have a tongue and the gift is the tongue, but, but there are actual ministries where the people with the ministries are the gift. Now, the thing is that these are, these are what you might call translocal ministries. So the point is that in the body of Christ, there are men who are raised up who, who have a gift and a calling that is going to be certainly beneficial to their own church that they are part of, but beneficial to the wider body as well. Now, so therefore, I mean, the church of which I'm a part, they acknowledge that I have a teaching gift that can benefit others. So what they do, and this is literally how I think about it, I, I, I guess they do as well, I hope they do, they are happy to share me out with other churches if indeed there are other churches who want to share, you know, who want me to come and share. Now, so, so the thing is that if, 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 if in a wider context, if other believers in other churches say, you know, hey, Beresford, you and we know other people as well can come and help us here, um, then I'm delighted to do that if everyone feels it's the right thing to do. But the point is, the relationship that these apostolic ministries strike with the churches that they're helping. Now, we've got to bear in mind as well that the original apostles, the 11, uh, well, the 12, minus Judas plus Paul, constituted an apostleship that was unique. There are still apostles today. Apostles just mean sent one. But the thing is, they were unique because they didn't just have the gift of being able to plant churches and help lots of people. They had been given a special anointing whereby they were teaching infallible truth. It doesn't mean they were infallible or sinless, but they, and they only, had infallible truth. It's what we call the New Testament. So obviously, they would relate to churches with, with a certain amount of authority. Paul could say to Timothy, command and teach these things. But the point is, he would only be saying things, or, or, or he said to the Corinthians, what I am writing to you is the command of the Lord. Because the point is, that was becoming scripture. So, so we don't today, or shouldn't have anyone saying, this is the command of the Lord through me. All we can say today is, well, hey, I think this is what the Bible teaches, you check it out for yourself. So, so the apostles had a special authority because they were the reference point. If you wanted to test something, you couldn't say, is it biblical? Because, well, you had the Old Testament, but you couldn't say, is it biblically, in the way we can. So you had to ask the question, how do we test this? Is it revelation from God, or are these the deceiving spirits we've been warned against? And the test was, is it consistent with what we know of apostolic teaching? And the apostolic teaching wasn't just the theory, not just doctrine, it was practice as well, how churches operate. So the thing is that therefore the original apostles had somewhat more authority over churches than anyone would today. But what's incredible, when you read their stuff or look at them in the Bible, they were the opposite of being authoritarian. Now today, no one is authoritative in the way that they were. No one. The scripture is our authority. And that's why we must together, and John has been bringing this out, together be seeking the Holy Spirit's revelation through scripture that we know that things tie in. So today, apostolic ministries, translocal ministries, or whatever, let's, let's think of it like this. If you have someone in a leadership function in a church, one of the elders, 
Now, let's, let's ask ourselves, in that church, who are the non-elders accountable to? Who, who'd like to... The Lord, absolutely. But of course anyone could say, oh, well, the Lord told me to do it. So I must be right. So, yeah, the Lord, and that accountability comes down to Scripture, but it must come down further. Because I, I could make any Scripture mean anything if I've got to be in my bonnet and just want to do my thing. So the point is, if we ask the question, to whom is a believer, a non-elder in a church accountable to? The answer is to the church. There's a corporate accountability to your brothers and sisters who know you well. Now, let's ask another question. Let's now say, now this guy is recognised as an elder. Who is he accountable to? The church. Exactly. Because there's no hierarchical eldership. There, there is none. Now then, Let's say that maybe translocal ministries, you, I mean, some of them might be like a travelling elder. You know, there might be new churches without elders yet, and so you go and help out. Now then, question, if I'm with another church helping out, when I'm back at home, at the church back home, to whom am I? Now, they recognise me as an elder, they recognise me as having a wider apostolic calling. It's just a word. Divest it of authority and then I'm, I'm happy. They recognise all that. Question, to whom am I accountable? The church. The same as everyone else. Now then, let's say I come and I'm invited to help out with, you know, at another church and maybe I'm there. I mean, some apostolic workers may stay for a year or so, Paul, you know, or, or you know, but I mean, for me, I'll, you know, I'm a, I'm a week or two man and I'm off back home, you know, uh, uh, and, uh, but, but when I'm there, okay, to whom are the non-elders accountable when I'm there? The church. To whom are the elders accountable when I'm there? And while I'm there, to whom am I accountable? The church that I'm with. There's no point being accountable to the church back home. They don't know what I'm up to. So what I'm saying is quite simply this. The only recognised authority is the church. Now, let's say that a church has said to me, Beres would come and help us, and I come and help. And let's say I'm saying, well, maybe it would be helpful for us to look at this and, it, you, know, it, you know, examine this. Maybe, maybe we need to, you know, let's, let's try and get the gifts of the Spirit going. And they say, oh, good, heresy, dreadful heresy. Beresford, oh, no, that's dreadful. Don't say a word against this, you know, don't say a word. In fact, more than that, just don't say anything. Because if, 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 if you believe in the gifts of the Spirit, you must be so deceived. You know, demons speaking tongues through you, right? I'm, 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 I'm parodying it. But let's say in an extreme or mild form, people say, no, we don't agree. I have no authority to tell them to agree with me. All I can do is say, okay, fair enough. If that's your consensus... Can I help with anything else, or is it just better that I leave? And when I leave, let's leave friends. The point is, apostolic workers do not have authority over the church. And I'll tell you why. The only authority, the only hierarchy relative to the church you have in the scripture is Jesus and everyone else. Now, in families, in society, there are other hierarchies. But in the church, Jesus and everyone else is all you've got. So, so therefore, I would not dare presume, because, you see, if each church is independent before the Lord, that means your church is quite free to go into all the area you want. And because all churches are independent before the Lord, the beauty is, we might all be related together, but if a church goes really wrong, or if a recognised leader goes wrong, 
he's not taking everything under him or that church isn't taking their whole cluster with them. They can go bad nicely on their own. Oh, that's it, that's got a shot of them. If, if, if they're not going to be sensible, then at least they're not contaminating everyone else. This is how it works. So, yeah, no, no hierarchy. So, you know, with, yeah, I, I don't mind apostles, translocal ministries, but what you must not think, these are not the head guys from headquarters coming to see how the troops are doing. No way. There is no hierarchy. I'm a servant the same as everyone else. Simple as that. Well, I, th I think that's our time up. But uh, this afternoon, uh, it's the, the next seminar after lunch. There are the bells going. Uh, we'll be looking at... For more information, contact the Chigwell Christian Fellowship on our website at www.house-church.org.